The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. The word of God speaks to us. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment, for it's been reported to me by Cleo's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I, I, don't know, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is God's word to us. Well, good morning. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Bryce Johnson. I am a pastoral resident here. Um, and as always, it is a joy and honor to worship with you and stand in front of you and open up God's word. I want to go ahead and just uh, acknowledge the elementary students in the room. Um, man, it is so uh, fun to have you in the room. It's a reminder uh, for you uh, of like the worship of God's people um, and, and to see your parents worshiping. It's also a reminder for us that they are the body of Christ. Uh, they are not just the future generation, but they are in a very real way the body of Christ. If you have a copy of the scriptures, go ahead and open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to be starting in verse 10, as Chad read. We have started a, a new series to walk through the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is this letter written to this uh, relatively young church in Corinth. And last week, we learned about this church. The, the church in Corinth was planted by the Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament. And uh, he went to Corinth, and Corinth, by some commentators, has been described um, as sort of like if you took... L.A. and New York and Vegas and all put them together. That was Corinth uh, in, in the ancient world. It was this bustling city. It was this highly intellectual city, but it was also a city where just anything went. Um, it's the sort of place where what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. And into the city, Paul came and he planted this church. And Paul spent a year and, his, and a half of his life there. He spent more time there than in any of his other uh, the churches that he planted. And he poured out his life uh, into this church and into these leaders, uh, building them up. And then he moved on. And in just a few short years, things just, things just became a hot mess. Um, and because in, very, in as much as the church was in Corinth, we heard last week was Corinth was also in the church. The cultural influences and the practices of Corinth had, had started seeping its way into the church in Corinth. And so here are some of the issues that, that we know of that Paul addresses in this letter. They, they were suing each other. They were suing each other over trivial things. They were using prostitutes and justifying it. 
they're bragging about their spiritual superiority. They're getting drunk at the communion table. They were neglecting the poor. They were abusing spiritual gifts. One of the things that's amazing is, is, is sometimes people say, man, I just, I just wish that the modern church would just go back and be like the New Testament church. Just, just want to be just like the New Testament church. And I read a letter like 1 Corinthians, and I'm like, are you sure? Right? Are, are, are you sure? Like, because, I mean, we are by no means a perfect people in this room, but I don't think anyone is getting drunk at these tables, right? Like, we've got, sh- we've got hefty pores, but no one's getting drunk here. This church is pretty jacked up, and yet we see that God loves the church in Corinth too much to let her continue in her waywardness. God loves the church so much that he wants to address these issues. The letter of 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul uses the language of brother and sister more so than he does in any of his other letters. He wants to, as, as jacked up as they are, he wants to remind them, hey, brothers and sisters, I want to plead with you. I want to come alongside you. I want to remind you of the grace that you have in Christ. The first nine verses, which we covered last week, they're dripping with love and they're a constant reminder for the Corinthians of who they are and whose they are. And in our passage this morning, we get to the first issue that Paul wants to dive into. The first issue of, of all the issues mentioned, and there are many more that I, I didn't mention, what would be the first issue to address? The first issue he delves into is the problem of division within the church. The division. The church in Corinth was splitting over their favorite church leader. They're fighting over who's a better preacher, who's more influential. Um, and to this issue of disunity, Paul calls the church in Corinth to unity. Now, this passage is, feels especially pertinent to us because we live in a time where it feels like the world is more divided than ever. Right? It feels more divided than ever. It feels like we've become increasingly more polarized. We're drifting towards extremes, and it feels like there's no going back. And sadly, many of those divisions have crept even into churches. My fear is that even our own divisions fall along the same dividing lines as that of the world. And maybe you feel that now. Maybe you feel tension with someone sitting in this room or or someone in your community group. Maybe it's someone within your family. Or maybe there are just even seeds of disdain for someone that are just seeds in your heart. Division is a real issue for our time. So we want to lean into what God would have for us. So we're going to look at this text, we're we're going to analyze this text, and we're going to ask three questions. Why is unity so important? What are the threats to unity? And what is the way to unity? Why is unity so important? What what threatens our unity? And what is the way to unity? And before we jump in, I just want to pray for us. I ask that you pray for me as I preach, and I want to pray for you, and then we'll dive right in. Father, I thank you for your word that speaks to us, your word which is living and active, um, your word which does not return void. And so, Spirit of God, would you enliven the word of God? And would you convict us where we need to be convicted? Would you you comfort us where we need to be comforted? Um, And would would Jesus be lifted up above all? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So why is unity so important? 
Well, unity is not a controversial idea, right? We all want unity. Every, every presidential candidate calls for it. We, we sing songs about it, and, and we see glimpses of it here and there, and when we see glimpses of it, it's, we, we celebrate it. One of, the, one of the beautiful things we see after a tragedy hits is the, are the ways that um, people rally together, come together to unify and build, rebuild what's destroyed. But even then, it just lasts for a moment, right? But unity, everyone loves unity. No one gets canceled for saying they want unity, but we almost never see it. And when we do see it, it's so brief. I was, I was racking my brain uh, this week just thinking through, like, man, when's, when's the last time I really felt like people were really unified or rallied around something? And I recalled uh, something sort of silly, but, but maybe many of you remember. About 10 years ago, in 2012, there was this video that went viral. It went viral, it just captured everyone. And it was this video about this Ugandan warlord named Joseph Kony. Right? He's, he's a warlord who, who was kidnapping uh, children and selling them into, uh, into trafficking. And he was doing it with thousands and thousands of, of, of kids. And people were outraged. Right? They, their eyes were open, they were outraged, and so they were, they were changing their image on social media. They were buying T-shirts and wristbands. Um, everyone was talking about it, right? Like Bill Gates was talking about it, and Rihanna was talking about it, and my Indian mother who just got on Facebook was talking about it, right? Like she, asked, she was like, did you know this? Like, like what's, I was like, mom, I, I, I don't even know what you're talking about, right? Like you, there's nothing, almost nothing like it, right? Everyone was united to stop Joseph Coney, hashtag stop Coney, right? And that lasted all of about four days. And then the world moved on, right? In fact, Joseph Coney's still at large today. That's that's besides the point. See, the best the world has to offer for unity is collective outrage for a short time. Maybe some virtue signaling, maybe a hashtag, until something else comes along and takes our mind off of it. We want unity on our own terms, right? We want everyone to think like us and act like us on all the issues we care about. We want people to care about the issues that we really care about and things that we don't really care about. Well, you can have your own opinion. What we want is a flattened unity. What we want is uniformity, right? Where my values are your values, my morals are your morals, um, and we don't want differences in the things that we care about. We all look the same, vote the same, read the same, but that's not what the Bible calls for. We know that's not what the Bible calls for because later on in this letter, Paul is going to celebrate diversity. He's going to celebrate the diverse gifts and perspectives that believers bring. So when the Bible calls for unity, it's calling for us to be unified in Jesus. And so with that in mind, we've got a copy of scriptures, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now notice how Paul starts off this verse. He says, I appeal to you. I'm pleading with you. And he pleads with an authority, right? It's in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I'm asking something of you, but I'm not just asking. I'm asking by the name of Jesus. I'm asking by the name of Jesus, who is our Lord and our Christ. And what I'm asking in his name is that all of you would be unified, would be uni- united. Now, why would he invoke the name of Jesus in this request for unity? It was because true unity begins with Jesus and being under his name. 
It's because unity is at the heart of who Jesus is. And when we don't live in unity, we actually live out of step with the gospel. We live contrary to what it means to be identified with the name of Jesus. Paul is calling to mind who their ultimate authority is, and it's not him. It's Jesus. They were baptized in Jesus' name. They were saved by Jesus. They belonged to Jesus. And part of what it means to belong to Jesus is that believers would be united. Unity is at the heart of who Jesus is. In fact, in John chapter 17, you get Jesus right before he's about to be betrayed and walk to the cross. And Jesus is praying to the Father. In just moments, Judas is going to come up with the soldiers. He's going to be betrayed. And Jesus prays this prayer. It's the high priestly prayer. Now, if you knew you were about to die, what are you praying for? What would be on the top of your mind if you knew that you were just about to die? What's going through your mind in those last moments? Jesus prays for our unity. Our unity. You don't have to turn there. John chapter 17. It's going to be on the screen. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. At the top of Jesus' mind, before his death, was our unity. He prays these words, and then gets up and is approached by Judas and the soldiers. Jesus prays for us. Jesus prays for us. I don't know if you know this, but you and I are in this passage right here. Jesus prays that our unity would look like the unity that he has with the Father. Trinitarian unity, where, where we're distinct persons, but one, but, but one. I don't know if you've ever tried to... Uh, describe the Trinity to someone or have someone describe the Trinity to you. It's, it's incredibly complicated. You have three distinct persons who are, who are distinct persons but, but one God. And that's what Jesus wants our unity to look like, distinct persons but a unified oneness. But not only that, he says when we're perfectly one, the world sees Jesus. In other words, the way you and I live together in unity the way we love one another and serve one another actually displays to the world what kind of God we have. And it displays to them who Jesus is. See, when we forgive each other when we've been wronged and come together, the world sees Jesus because we display what he did for us. When we work together to serve the marginalized, the world sees the way Jesus served the least among us. And when we're patient with one another, despite our differences, the gospel of reconciliation is proclaimed. See, our, our unity might be the greatest evidence for Christianity. Might be the greatest evidence for Christianity. Not our cleverly devised uh, arguments, not our logic, but our unity. In fact, Jesus says, by this all men would know you're my disciples, by the way you love one another. Listen, this is, this is not my words, it's Jesus' words. And it's amazing because you can't have unity with just one person, right? It doesn't just take one person. It takes all of us living together, loving one another, linking arms together as the brilliantly beautiful, diverse body of Christ. Christian unity takes a community rallying together as one. 
right? Not over a cause, not over uh, political lines, but around the person and work of Jesus. And this is why Paul appeals to the name of Jesus. And so, listen, however, however you're trying to build unity, however you're trying to, to, to call it up, whether it's over some philosophy or, or, or style or personality, it won't work because true unity starts with a name. And that name is the name by which every knee will one day bow and every tongue will one day confess in the name of Jesus. So it begs the question, if, if Christian unity is so important and it's so beautiful, why does it seem so hard to come by? Right? What, are the, what are the threats to our unity? Well, let's keep reading. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting verse 11. For, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ, right? One of the amazing things about this passage, this is an aside, is that the Corinthians hadn't told Paul that they were divided, right? They weren't like, hey, help us, we're quarreling over this. Paul heard this from Chloe, who's this wealthy businesswoman from Ephesus. She visits visits. Uh, Corinth sees this, and then they go and tell Paul. And it's, it's caused me to think, what do outsiders experience in our midst? What do, what do others see when they come to our Sunday gatherings and our community groups? What do they experience? See, the Corinthians were splitting off into factions over who was their favorite leader. And there are a lot of thoughts over what these groups, the I follow Paul, I follow Peter, I follow Paulus groups. Um, there are a lot of thoughts over what these groups were, but many people think that the group that said, I follow Paul, was the group that was saved by Paul's preaching. Paul goes, plants this church, um, he, he's, he uh, preaches the gospel, he's involved in the lives of many of them, and so this was their guy. They said, Paul's our guy. And then there was Apollos who came after Paul preaching. And what we know about, uh, from scripture is that Paulus was a great preacher. He was, people loved to listen to him, he was very eloquent, um, he was an incredible preacher. In fact, Paul references Many times in his letter, he says, hey, I, I know I'm not a great preacher. Hey, I, I know I stumble a lot. In fact, uh, one time when Paul was preaching, a kid fell out of a window because he fell asleep because of Paul's preaching, right? Like, no one fell asleep when Apollos was preaching. Apollos was a gifted teacher. Many people think that the group that said, um, I follow Peter might have been the Jewish contingent um, or those who've been changed by Peter's ministry or, or wanted to be linked to um, the, the, the head of the church who was Peter. And the last group, I follow Christ were those who said, you guys can have your teachers, you guys can have Paul and Apollos and, and Cephas, but I follow Jesus. And you would think, you would think that this is the group that, that Paul says, finally someone gets it. Finally, here is a group I can get behind. But he doesn't. Most, most commentators think that this is the group that probably rejected the authority of all leaders. They said, Hey, no one can speak into my life. It's just me and Jesus. So you can't tell me what to do. I, I hear directly from him. Now, here's what struck me this week. This church wasn't splintering over theological issues. Right? They're, they're not splintering over the divinity of Jesus or, or, or these deeper theological reasons. In fact, chapter 11, Paul says, hey, sometimes we need a divide to, to realize who actually is a Christian or not. But the church wasn't dividing over theology, but over preference. And they allowed their preferences to pull them away from other believers. See, unity is threatened when we elevate our preferences over the name of Jesus. So maybe there's some of that in this room, right? Maybe, maybe some of you are like, man, 
I was here when the church was planted. I am a Chad Puckett guy. I love how he preaches. He casts this beautiful, great vision. I am, I follow Chad Puckett. And some of you are like, no, but, but Jeff Nine, man, when he preaches, I feel the love of God. I connect with his tears and my tears, they connect. I, I follow Jeff Nine. And, and some of you are like, yeah, but I'm Josh Curry guy. I was there in downtown. His preaching radically affected my life, right? I connect with him. I, for some of you, it's how we do ministry, right? Our mission statement is to love God, love people, push back darkness. And, and maybe you see yourself drawn to one of those, right? And so... So some of you see the importance of Scripture, and Scripture is how we love God primarily, and so you want more Bible. You want to go deeper. You want to discuss Scripture to find new insights, and so you want more Bible studies. You want more classes. Just, just give me more Bible. Some of you are like, yeah, yeah, but, but we need to love people, right? And so you love the family meal and, the, the, and community, and you're all about our groups developing deeper relationships because you want to make sure that people are known and loved. And but some of you are like, yeah, but we've got a mission, Right? We've got to push back darkness, so let's do more service projects, more initiatives. You want more evangelism and more, more mission trips. For some of you, it's insert whatever you feel strongly about, right? Adoption and foster care or social justice or abortion or the education system or health care or what really happened at the end of inception. Is it a dream or not, right? Like, I've got some thoughts, but listen, maybe this morning it's your feelings on how do we say in this city and love this city? And if we're not careful, we can splinter off into factions. And I can go on and on, but the question is, the question for us is, in what ways are you letting your preferences be the primary lens you look through? See, the scary thing about division in the church is it's not always visible. It's not like, hey, there's a group, there's a group right here, and there's a group here, and there's a group on, on this wall. It's not always visible. Many times it's just the posture of our heart. So posture of our heart. So, so here are a few diagnostic questions. Here are a few diagnostic questions for us where we can see where the spirit of disunity is starting to bud in our own hearts, right? So here's the first question. Or here, or here's the first thing. When you start to assume the motives of other people who don't think like you, and you start to see them as the enemy. When you start to assume the motives of other people who don't think like you, and you start seeing them as the enemy, right? You, we look at them, and for whatever reason, uh, whether it's their, their, their age or their background or how they look or their life stage, we assume they don't think like us. They don't think like me. So we shut them off in our hearts. We shut them off in our hearts. And when that happens, we're on the clock for disunity. Here's the second one. When you start to withdraw yourself from community because you find it really hard to connect with other people. And, and you might not say this, but you feel it in your heart. It's because they're not on your level. Right? They're, not, they're not on your level educationally or financially. They're not on your level spiritually. They're not on your level morally. And so you, you see yourself as beyond what that person can offer to you. Or you think that, man, no one just understands me. And when that happens, disunity has started to bud. Here's a third one. When, when ideas and teachers from afar start to draw your attention to the point that their voice becomes louder than the voices in your own community that actually know you, right? When ideas and teachers from afar have such an influence where their voice is more influential, more impactful in your life, when people that don't know you have a greater impact on you than the people that actually do have a relationship with you and do walk with you. Put another way, when social media influencers have a greater impact on you than your local church community, 
when, when leaders out there sway you more than the church leaders who have walked with you and opened the Bible with you and faithfully stewarded God's word with you. Friends, unity is, disunity is just around the corner. Last one. When you're no longer open to the possibility that you could be wrong on an issue. When you're no longer open to the possibility you could be wrong on an issue. So no one in your life can say no to you. No one can correct you. Friends, you're not far from having a divisive spirit. Now, I don't know if if you saw this, but each one of these draws you away from people and further and further into isolation. See, that's what's at the root of division. It's pride. It's pride. When you say, I follow Paul and I follow Cephas, we're not saying that's just my preference. We're finding identity in Paul and Cephas. And we're elevating ourselves. We're saying, it's, it's pride. We're saying, I connect with the greater voice. So we pride ourselves over so many things, don't we? Our intelligence or our savvy, or our theology, our abilities to know, our ability to connect. And, and so we're not just elevating our opinions, we're elevating the ways we believe we're right and others are wrong. And we're elevating ourselves. And then we remove ourselves from community. See, pride leads to isolation and division and are drawing away from others. This is, this is why this is the very first issue that Paul brings up. It's because if you can't, if, if the church of Corinth isn't united, they aren't united in the personal work of Jesus, then, then everything else is going to fall by the wayside. And so this leads me to my last point. What is the way to unity? What's the way to unity? If I were writing this letter, I would have said, I appeal to you by the name of Jesus, be of the same mind. It's reported to me by Chloe's people. There's quarreling among you. So stop it. So stop it. Stop quarreling, right? Just, just, just get your act together. And thankfully, I didn't write this letter. Paul, Paul says in verse 13, he, he asks these probing questions. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. By the way, I, I love this. If you've ever uh, doubted the veracity of, of that, that people, real people wrote the New Testament, you can just see Paul, he's just writing. He's like, hey, I didn't baptize anyone of you. Christmas, Gaius, no one can say, oh, by, oh, okay, I, I did baptize the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, stop asking me questions, no one else. Like, I, I, I can't remember. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Here's the last point. The unity is restored by looking at the cross, looking to the cross. Paul asks, is Christ divided? And the answer is no, right? Christ is not divided. But it's interesting because Christ is not divided right now in the present tense. But Christ was divided on the cross. On the cross, the body of Christ was, the flesh of Christ was divided. On the cross, Jesus was divided from the Father so that you and I might be reconciled and made whole. Paul asks, hey, hey, was I crucified for you? I, I, I forget, were you baptized in my name? He's reminding us whatever else we're trying to elevate, whatever cause we're rallying around, whatever preference that we're elevating, whatever person we're trying to rally and identify with, they haven't been crucified for us. Listen, Frontline Church, has your favorite podcaster been crucified for you? 
Have you been baptized into your preference for small group ministry? Or children's ministry? Or has your political party saved you? No, of course not, right? He's pointing us back to Jesus. He's reminding us of our identity. Jesus was crucified. We've been baptized and placed our allegiance into Jesus, into one person, and he is our only authority. See, unity is achieved when we see that the cross actually levels the playing field for all of us. No one comes to the cross with their head held, head held high. No one comes to the cross boasting in their favorite preacher or boasting in their preference. No one's bragging about their political party, their favorite college football team, their accomplishments. At the, the very nature of the cross is that you need a savior. We come to the cross as sinners in need of a savior, broken. We come because there's no other person, no other thing, no other ideology that can save us. We come to the cross because the only thing to see is the broken body of Jesus being pierced and divided so that you and I might be made whole. At the cross, you receive the forgiveness of God because of Jesus' sacrifice. You get what you don't deserve. The cross humbles you. You didn't deserve grace. You didn't deserve God's forgiveness, but he gave it to you. And then, that's not where it stops. See, then you look around at the person to your left and right, and you see they needed a Savior too. They needed their sins forgiven too. See, unity is achieved when you can look at one another and say, me too. I didn't deserve God's grace. I didn't deserve God's forgiveness. I didn't deserve to be healed of my hostility, but he did it for me too. So if you sense the seeds of disunity in your heart this morning, the cross bids you to come and look on Jesus. If you feel, if you feel disdain towards a brother or sister, maybe even in this room, listen, no matter what they did, no matter who they are, Jesus comes to you, calls you, you invite you to look upon him. Friends, the cross has power. It has power to turn enemies into brothers and sisters, to break down walls of hostility, to restore what's been broken. And so if you've elevated something, anything over Jesus, would you look to him this morning? And Paul says, hey, the gospel, the cross has power. Not not. It's not a persuasive argument. It's not a catchy phrase. It's not, it's not a hashtag. It's not a rallying cry. It's the son of God who died for your sin and my sin and was raised to life. Friends, can I remind you that if you're in here and you have put your hope and faith in Jesus, the most true thing about you, the most true thing about you is the gospel. The most true thing thing about you is that Jesus died for your sins and was raised to life. And he, and he saved you into a community of people for whom the gospel is the most true thing about them. Not your, not your preference, not your party line, not what kind of worship music style you like, not what kind of education philosophy you hold to. The most true thing about you is the gospel. And if you're in here and you've never put your faith in Jesus, listen, the cross bids you to come and look upon Jesus and receive grace. He'll take your pride and give you grace. He'll take you from your isolation and put you into a body to belong with. Would you look to him? 
I want to end our time by reading another one of Paul's letters. Paul wrote about unity quite a bit in his letters. And he's encouraging them towards unity as well. And, and he, he points them to the gospel, and then he points them to the person of Jesus. And so, so, so would you receive this from Philippians chapter 2? He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, there's any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, which there is, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He's just rephrasing what he just said in verse 11. Verse 10. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, friends, in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, would you look upon Christ this morning? Let's pray.